0: Hello, and
1: welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center of Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the sixth in Reese's spring speaker series, Socialism Past, Present, and Future at the University of Pittsburgh. In this series, we've been exploring the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist inspired economic development and state building, and visions of a socialist future from a global perspective. Forty years ago, Margaret Thatcher declared that there is no alternative. State socialism was dying, and capitalism, restructured as neoliberalism, was ascendant. The collapse of state socialism in 1991 seemed to hammer the last nail into socialism's coffin and vindicate Thatcher's prophecy. Fast forward to today. Socialism is back. However, the road to socialism is not easy. Today's socialists cannot simply be dreamers. They must also be realists. To get an idea of what socialists want, I talked to Sam Ginden about the need for socialists to establish popular confidence in the feasibility of a socialist society and the pragmatic steps we can take to get there. Sam Gindon has spent much of his working life as a research director for the Canadian Auto Workers, now UNIFOR. After leaving the union, he was the Packer Chair in Social Justice at York University. He's co-author, with Leo Panish, of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of Empire, published by Verso, and most recently, also with Panik and Steve Mayer, The Socialist Challenge Today, Ceresa Corbin Sanders, published by Haymarket Books. Here's Sam Gindin. Just to start our conversation, why don't you start and tell us about yourself?
0: Okay, I'm Canadian. I grew up uh, in Winnipeg. I was actually born in Siberia. Um, And uh, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I guess one of the most formative things for me is uh, something you mentioned that I worked for the uh, Canadian Auto Workers as a research director. I worked very much uh, in education and around strategic questions. Um, and then I taught at York this course on social ju- uh, political activism and social justice for a decade. Uh, what was so great about it is that it uh, allowed movement activists and activist workers uh, to take it, whether or not they were enrolled at York. and actually the best thing about the uh, The the seminar that we had was the exchange between workers uh, and the students. Um, And since then, I've been trying to do some work with rank and file workers. I've been uh, spending a lot of time on trying, before the health crisis, trying to get a closed plant converted uh, for environmental use, working with Green Jobs Oshawa, uh, doing education with rank and file workers, and writing. Uh, I'm retired relaxed and uh, enjoying life.
1: Talk a bit more about that ex- experience of, of joining both students and rank-and-file workers in this kind of educational project. What, are, what, what, what did that reveal to you? Like, what do you take from that experience and how did it, it influence you?
0: Um, I guess one thing that struck me uh, in doing this was that most of the uh, students who were taking this Probably it was usually about 20-25 people, uh, and about uh, 15 uh, were students. Most of the students were actually working. This wasn't like my life as a student, which meant you had a chance to goof off, skip classes, read what you wanted, feel secure that uh, you know. We used to have debates about where do you want to go to university, not whether you're going to get a job. So for these students, it was completely different. They were actually in the workforce, running running between jobs. Uh, the other thing was the exchange was great because the uh, workers who took the course who were generally more practical, but interested in social justice issues, uh, found the students very utopian, almost in a naive way. And they loved it. They loved it. And the students eventually got the confidence to challenge the workers and ask them questions like, uh, why is it important to you to have a big car or a pickup truck? Uh, given environmental questions. So they would usually, it was a three hour seminar and they'd usually go for a drink. And all of them would actually go and and develop relationships. And that was the best part of the course. The best part was actually them talking to each other uh, and debating things. So that that was actually a, a great experience. One of the things that happened in it was we had a scholarship for people who weren't York students. And they got a stipend. And it turned out that the people who weren't York students were actually the only people with money. So they pooled their resources and they actually gave it to the students, which was which was uh, nice. And the commitment of workers was quite remarkable. A lot of them would finish a shift uh, in another community and just drive to the class. And then after the class, drive back home and get a few hours of sleep before they uh, began work again. Because they're genuinely interested in learning things. That so was exciting.
1: Yeah, that sounds like an amazing class. Actually, I can't, I can I can only imagine the impact it had on everybody who participated. Um, let's talk a bit more about you. What what drew you into socialist politics and in the left more general?
0: I don't know. It wasn't like I was recruited to something. I, I think
1: you don't. You didn't have a conversion experience. No, I
0: didn't have a conversion <laughs> experience. I think it was an accumulation of things, but it was very much. Uh, the times and the place. Uh, I lived in North End Winnipeg, uh, as did Leo Panich and as did a lot of uh, the friends that I still have. And it was, was um, a working class immigrant, Jewish, Ukrainian. Uh, Winnipeg had had a general strike in 1919 that Gramsci actually mentioned in one of the rallies in Italy. So there was a history uh, that was just in the air. And I think that's the point about it just being in the air rather than necessarily being talked about was pretty fundamental. My grandfather used to send me to a place, which I didn't know what I, where I was going, to pick up uh, a newspaper called Forvats. Forward. It was from New York. It was a left social democratic newspaper. And when I came back from, uni- from university and was looking for books, I realized that he was sending me to the economy bookstore. Uh, He was, you know, he was a sewing machine operator. Uh, My dad, I remember, maybe this was kind of a significant experience, uh, telling me that being a worker was surviving, not living. And his big aim was to get out of being in the working class. He eventually became a businessman. And then the 60s were crucial. I went to school in Madison in the 60s. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of limits to the 60s that I don't want to exaggerate it, but there was a sense of possibilities and in being intertwined with all kinds of struggles. Uh, and it was liberating in that sense. So I think it was, it was the times and it was things being in the air in a particular way that, uh, you know, we skipped classes and went and formed a study group on Marxism because we didn't have any Marxist profs. And by the way, we, when we finally got a Marxist prof, he was an academic who wasn't interested in politics. So uh, we went back to our study groups.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, but, you know, your your family, uh, uh, you were born in, in Siberia. Your family survived World War II and immigrated uh, first to the United States and then to Canada. So did the, your parents weren't... There wasn't an anti-Soviet or anti-communism that kind of tried to sway you away from it. It sounds like they were pretty open, or at least not against you getting into this politics.
0: Well, it it was mixed. Um, My father had left home in Belarus because the Russians had occupied what was then part of Poland. Uh, He was warned by the Russians to get out because the Germans... It would be incredibly dangerous. He was about 15 or 16. He got picked up by the Red Army. And like a lot of other Jews, they were taken behind the lines for their own safety. And I think, if anything, my dad, so my dad had a sympathy for the Russian Empire, but it was actually a a nationalist sympathy. He was more like a nationalist Russian. Uh, But he also thought that the ideals of communism were uh, misplaced. They were too utopian. They weren't practical. So a lot of our debates were about him trying to prevent me from becoming too radical a socialist. And you know, I think he was also kind of trying to, to bend the stick. Uh, so that was kind of the family experience. Although the question that you raised is an important one because I think my attitude to the Holocaust, and I, I don't think it's determining, others responded differently, wasn't to become a Zionist, or to become more Jewish or religious, it gave me a really liberal and universalist sense. This shouldn't happen again. And I don't know why. Uh, You know, it wasn't like my brothers responded the same way as I did, but it gave me a certain liberalism. And that liberalism, I think, developed into radicalism as I learned more.
1: Now, you, uh, of course, have, have had a long career working and writing about the Canadian Auto Workers Union and trade unionism in general. Um, how, did, how did that experience shape your view of labor and capitalism?
0: I'd been thinking about labor, and I think i had come to the conclusion before I got the job, uh, that we wouldn't have change unless socialists penetrated the working class. The working class was absolutely fundamental. Uh, other things were obviously important. Social movements were important at the time, especially the women's movement, but, uh, the Black Power movement. But... If we couldn't get to the working class, uh, social change would be impossible. And I know and I left university. I dropped out of doing my getting my doctorate to get a job with the, the auto workers. Uh, and I, I I think what it either confirmed or what I learned from it, that workers are not inherently revolutionary. Uh, they're pragmatic. Uh, they're very uneven in their development. They can be radical on some things and conservative on other things. So what I loved about working with them was that I actually found them open. I loved to argue with them. I loved to try to convince them. I loved the fact that they were a check on me. I couldn't just say these radical slogans without them challenging me. Uh, But I did get the sense that these people were actually being made into a particular kind of class by capitalism. Capitalism was fragmenting them. Uh, They had a short-term outlook because of their insecurity. They were dependent on capital. All these things were making a particular kind of working class. And the challenge was, how do you make a different working class? And that just wasn't going to happen spontaneously. It raised the question of a socialist party. In terms of the question of capitalism itself, I think there are two things that uh, really struck me. One was that the class question had to be understood not in terms of that they were taking the surplus from workers, but what they were robbing workers of was their potential capacities. That that human capacity to do, to plan, to do, uh, was being taken from them. They were selling it to capital every day. And uh, that was fundamental. And this question of capacities, I think is crucial. Because if your critique of capitalism is that it perverts your capacities, it takes them from you, it affects how you develop, then that also has a lot to do with what your vision of socialism is. It's developing people's capacities. it's It's not that people again, are going to be you know spontaneously or automatically wonderful, but it's the potential to actually make the you know develop the capacities of everybody and do it in a collective way because you depend on everybody. And then it also addresses the question of politics because the fundamental question wasn't just the morality the morality of socialism compared to capitalism was how do people who are uh, you know abused, uh, narrowed, uh, fragmented in terms of what skills they use every day. How could people like this think of a bigger world and make a bigger world? So the question again becomes a question of how do you develop the capacities, the political capacities to organize, to strategize, to understand, to analyze. Uh, and that again gets back to what kind of a socialist party we have. The other thing about capitalism that I guess I just learned really concretely was the power of competition. And that has a lot to do also with how I think about socialism because the drive to compete uh, is just such a discipline. And for workers, it makes them linked to their own employer, just out of dependence. And it cuts them off from real solidarity. And it really suggests that a socialism that says, we're just gonna have workers taking over factories and becoming their own employer, then poses the question of, well, are you just going to compete with everybody? And what, 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 you know, what does that say? So I think this question of competition is really fundamental. I'm saying it because when I hear socialism and class talked about in the United States today, there's a lot of talk about class power, but not that much about competition and how it reflects and mediates class power. Cause you know, it affects how we think about trade and, uh, and uh, the question of should we have more inward development you know without without becoming a target so i I, th- I think the you know being there concretely with workers really impressed to to me how important we have to address this question of competition because it just so limits workers and disciplines them
1: interesting so in a way uh, it, your understanding of of Socialism, the type of a type of system that you imagine or you would like to see, is one that, in a way, kind of harks back to some of the early kind of Marx writings about the humanism, the 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 power of human creativity, and how does a a society, a future society or more equitable society, harness and facilitate and also promote that human creativity and hum, human capacity. Would that be kind of a correct understanding of of how you see things?
0: Yeah, I would really start with this question of capacities. You know, and and I guess there's another thing. It's just a Marxist point. I don't know that I thought about it at the time. But uh, the role of the employer under capitalism is to coordinate labor power. You take your labor power, you give it to him, you get something in exchange. You get the power to consume in exchange, he gets the power to do. And that's the real power of the employer. He gets to coordinate this. That's what he's really getting paid for in a sense. That's where the surplus comes from. And the question it poses is, how would we coordinate this if we didn't have the employer? And it's a little bit, it's not that hard to imagine it in a small workplace or even in a large workplace. It gets very difficult when you say, well, how are we gonna coordinate this across society? And that begins to raise difficult questions um, about socialism. But I I just want to stress how important to me personally it was to be grounded. Uh, It meant that I couldn't just throw my ideas around. If I was arguing with the leadership, I had to convince them. And rarely did I convince them the first time I tried. But I kept learning about what their counterarguments were. So this question of being grounded is important, and hopefully we'll get back to that when we're talking about issues on the left today, because I think that's one of the really difficult questions.
1: Yeah. Well, let's turn to the, this, this essay you published about two years ago, Socialism for Realists, and you published this in the, the journal Catalyst. Um, why did you write this essay?
0: When I was a graduate student, I actually started, uh, I, I wanted to write, do a model of socialism. What would it actually look like? And then I decided that was kind of silly. Like to do that seriously, I'd have to go to the Soviet Union, really study it seriously, learn Russian. And I thought, what a silly thing to do in the middle of 68, know, in 68, and everything that's going on here. And I think I was kind of convinced by Marx's argument that this isn't what socialists should be doing, drawing blueprints for the future. And I think circumstances um, changed my mind. Also, a friend had written a book that he discovered. Uh, it was a Russian who had written a book, which he called his uh, uh, desk book, because he knew it would never leave his desk. It could never be published. It was too radical. And he was really thinking about this in, you know, in the 70s. And I thought, something has changed here. And I think what has changed is, it's really hard to imagine somebody in 1848, writing the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels, before we had cars, Before we had trains, before we had computers, before we had the internet, what can they really say about what socialism is going to look like? But even more than that, from from that time on, and I'd say for the next hundred years, socialism was kind of in the air. You didn't have to prove that it's possible. You you know, you'd have doubts about it. But, you know, first generation of workers coming you know, weren't, you know, coming out of farms, weren't... uh, you know immediately integrated into capitalism it took a long time to really do that and you know when unions began to be formed there were socialists leading this and you look at capitalism in the you know in the, in the 20th century you've got two wars you've got a great depression it didn't look like a capitalism especially a global capitalism might even be possible and that had to be wiped away and in fact it was wiped away it was wiped away in terms of social democracy, uh, not being socialist, even when it was progressive. It was wiped away, obviously, the importance of the defeat of the Soviet Union. But it was especially wiped away within the working class. Uh, you know, Either workers uh, saw themselves as making gains within capitalism, as social democracy did, or when that was denied to them, workers turned to hoping that, well, may, we've actually achieved a lot. Now the goal is to hang on to what we have. And when he began to think in terms of hanging on you know hanging on to what they had, what it meant was uh, a lowering of expectations, a lowering of ambitions. It meant being defensive. And that's been going on for thirty or forty years. So socialism has really been marginalized with one caveat, which is that the word is now more prevalent than ever before. But the point is that the meaning of the word isn't what it meant. It now means things like having healthcare, good. But that's a lot different than talking about a planned economy and democracy throughout society. So I guess I wrote it because I thought that today, if you actually want to say to workers, uh, why aren't you a socialist? You had to actually say it was possible. You mean, you know, that it was essential. If you couldn't tell them that it were, you didn't have to prove it was possible. And I think this is an important thing maybe we'll get into as you ask me some questions about my approach to this is that it's not that i think we can prove socialism will happen it's that i think we have to convince people it's pl- plausible it's worth making a commitment to and thinking about and studying and i think that's fundamental today now you know it's fundamental along a, a number of other questions that we have to think about how do you, how do you affect working class consciousness so they actually want to change the world how do you how do you organize the working class into a social force? But I think these things are, are related. It's very hard for me to imagine workers who now don't have much time, who are exhausted by work, uh, agreeing to do a lot of reading and studying and going to a lot of boring meetings if they don't think at the end of the day socialism is possible.
1: So uh, what, I'm, what I'm actually, actually curious about, the, the t- even the title of this essay, is, is the four realists part. So, who are the? What is the realists of this? Who who are you writing this for?
0: Well, I, I should tell you that wasn't my title.
1: <laughs> well, you have to own I, it now. I can't. I, I can't.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I, can't uh, I can't actually remember what my title was. Uh, I, it was a title that all my friends and the editor of Catalyst didn't like. I, I think it was something like "Is there a there there?" But uh, I, I think what what that means the emphasis on for realists. Uh, is that uh, we have to be able to convince people who are skeptical and we have to be able to talk about socialism that isn't sound like we're religious and just passing on something that isn't problematic. I really want to to argue, and I I have to be honest about this, I was kind of trying to convince myself it's possible. I I was, you you know, what else is there to do? except believe it's possible, and I was really trying to convince myself, but do I really believe it's possible? And I was trying to say that we have to really problematize socialism. We can't just say that, well, all you have to do is take over the means of production, and then people will become good, and everything will be wonderful, and you really have to deal with real problems. So it's for realists in the sense of people who are willing to be skeptical, who are willing to say, you got to convince me. And that I'm not going to promise them these neat answers. It's going to be messy. But for people who really want to engage in that kind of thinking, and I think that applies to, uh, you know, both activist workers who are thinking and a lot of lefties. I think I was actually trying to also challenge lefties. And I was also trying to challenge a tradition on the left that thought this is actually quite easy, that, you know, we shouldn't make it hard. You're not going to mobilize people if you tell them it's hard. And my position has been, you're not going to, it doesn't do us a lot of good to mobilize people by lying to them, especially if your starting point is you think that these kinds of people, workers, can one day run the world. You better have faith in them that they can actually understand things and cope with difficulties.
1: Now, much of your essay deals with the organization of socialist economy. And so what are some of the main issues that you think need addressing and thinking about what a socialist economy, how it would be organized?
0: A lot. Uh, I I would start with, you know, when we say that we believe in uh, socialist property, socialist ownership of the means of production. The question becomes, well, what does that concretely mean? How do you actually manifest that? Uh, You know, so for example, if you say it is planning, then where does worker control come in? If planners are going to set all the parameters and tell workers they have to Operates within them, where does workers' control come in? On the other hand, if you tell workers uh, socialism is about each of you taking over your factory and running it, then the question is well, where does the social come in? How do you meet the social? And I don't just mean that in terms of consciousness. I mean, even if workers are thinking to themselves, I really want to be, do what's best for everybody, how do they know? How do they know how much aluminum they should put into a car as opposed to that aluminum going to? appliances. How do they know if they say, I'd rather take uh, work short or work week? How that affects everybody and whether it's responsible. So there's all these complexities that you can't know just working in a workplace. So that becomes a, pro- a question. So how does it become social? And how does it not become the property of planners? And, and you know, even if the planners have some democratic checks on them, If they know all this stuff and have access to all this information, doesn't that give them an enormous amount of power over workers? So how do we figure out what kind of new institutions do we need uh, to do this? So I think that's one big question. My other other concern, which I mentioned earlier, and I I guess I I would really stress it is, uh, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that because there isn't any thing to take off the shelf and say, here it is. Just go and implement it. And I really don't think there is. I think there's a lot of terrific, thoughtful uh, stuff that's useful. And I think it's important to have ideas. You can't just say, oh, we'll, we'll figure this out. You have to convince people that you've got some ideas, some examples of ways to go so it does look possible. But I do think we have to accept that it's gonna be a very imperfect society. That as we get there, I mean, not only is there the a whole question of what's the legacy of how we got there? I mean, was the economy destroyed on the way? Did we inherit socialism because an environmental catastrophe destroyed capitalism? Uh, what's going on here? Did we have uh, a coup where we suddenly had a few people take over? So the legacy is critical. But beyond that, we just don't know how it'll work. We have to have ideas, but we're going to have to, it's, it's, it's a process of discovery, learning, inventing. So I think we have to come to grips with an imperfect system that we're constantly figuring out, how do we make more perfect? So, you know, so it's an ongoing process. It's not the end of history. It's not an event that happens, oh, we won. That's not how it'll be. And, and the ruptures will be ongoing. It could be reversible. You could win and be defeated.
1: So in in a way, you're kind of I mean, this goes to the, the another thing you emphasize is this idea of process, because most of the the socialist revolutions, let's say, of the 20th century have been those where they've been kind of events or, or ruptures. Uh, and, and you're you're saying, oh, you know, sure, there'll be certainly ruptures. I mean, based on what you just said, but at the same time, you have to have this long view of a process. It's something that unfolds. It could go forward. It could go back there might need to be some kind of flexibility and there might need to be some, some expectation to deal with failures.
0: Right. And I I think, I think the last part that you said is uh, really important. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, there's going to be events. There's going to be ruptures. There's probably going to be a lot of ruptures. You know, I can imagine a breakthrough and then you come up against problems and the right remobilizes and then you need, you know, to, to go to another stage. So, so, All of that's gonna happen, but when I emphasize that it's gonna be a process, I guess there's a couple of things. One is uh, the emphasis on thinking about this as, you know, I said earlier, discovery, invention, learning. But the main point is that if we're not ready for that, what we risk is disillusion. People say, hey, this isn't perfect. This isn't what I expected. Then you're gonna get a reaction. And I think that is so fundamental uh, to building the kind of social force that you want to come to power. They have to come to power understanding that. And there's an example I use in the book, and I just want to reference it because it, it really struck me. Marxists often say, uh, well, in the process of making the revolution, uh, praxis is going to teach us everything we know. It's going to teach us collectivity, solidarity. And that's true. Uh, you know, how you get there is is critical. But the kind of skills you learn in making a revolution may not be the kind of skills you need in administering another society. That's one problem. The other thing is that there's a generational change. The people who made the revolution, uh, the next generation might not be the same. You know, I see a lot of that when I talk to Chilean immigrants. You know, the next generation, you know, the generation I met were generations who who came after uh, Allende. Uh, A lot of the next generation doesn't want to talk about politics because of their experience. So the next generation is another question. So you have to figure out how do you institutionalize the revolution? Uh, Because people didn't have that experience. And then one of the things I read from uh, somebody who had been jailed by Stalin, um, and uh, he came back and he said he was shocked. He was seeing revolutionaries who had these new positions. And they were revolutionaries. They were wonderful revolutionaries. And all of a sudden, they are being socialized by the power they had. So there is always this constant problem. And so when I say a process, part of what I'm trying to redefine as well is what, how we think about democracy. And I, I, I'm trying to think about very much as there isn't a perfect constitutional democracy. Uh, do you want to stop me for a second or should I go on with this?
1: I think this leads into the the, the other question I have is that because your essay deals so much with the economic organization, um, you know, it does beg the question of, well, what about politics? What about culture? Because, you know, if we take how you know, socialist experiments of the 20th century, if we look at those, we we also see that they weren't just about, you know, developing a socialist economy, they were also building a, a socialist society, a socialist culture, a socialist people. So I was, I'm curious how you also connect that to the more economic discussion that you have.
0: Okay, well, well first of all, with the political, um, which I think is related to both economics and culture, uh, I'm trying to think of a culture that's based on checks and balances rather than a perfect constitution, where all the liberal freedoms, are not only important, that we don't just shit on them, they're really important, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, You know, having parties. I think parties are still gonna be important. Uh, but actually, once you get rid of private property in a socialist way, you can actually expand on all those freedoms, and that's very important. And by, sec- by saying checks and balances, I-, I won't go into it unless somebody asks a question, but I was trying to think through things like, not just having planning and markets, but having layers of planning at different levels. Not spatially and sectorally, and uh, uh, you know, which I think is important. And and, uh, thinking of sectoral ways that can mediate uh, workplaces and the plan so that they have some power that's a check on the top, but also deals with how we deal with markets and competition uh, between firms, which we can get into later. But on the question of culture, I think it's a, a fundamental question. I don't think I say much about it. The essay. I guess what I would say about it is there are conditions for actually dealing with culture so we aren't overwhelmed by the economic. Having security, dealing with equality, having access to all kinds of things. I think that's fundamental. I think that's, you know, that's a base for culture, even though it's not like you wait for it. It's part of what the revolution is about it's a revolution, unless people accept the fact that getting to a revolution is going to probably lower our standards of living. And people have to have a sense that I'm ready to do that because I want a different world. So it immediately has to be cultural. But I also think we have to think of culture as a capacity. You know, when I, 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 when I worked with workers and I ask a worker if they listen to Mozart as an example. And they say Mozart, you know, what's that? It, it's not that they don't like Mozart. It's that they haven't been they haven't gotten any training that opened them to Mozart. It hasn't even been on the radar screen about thinking about And one of the things you want about a socialist society is that it opens up all those things. It's part of this notion of potentials and capacity. And I would hope that in a socialist society, even though the economic questions are going to dominate, like how, how the hell do we reproduce ourselves economically and deal with incentives and change all this stuff, but that over time, for example if more goods become free the economic becomes less important and the culture actually becomes more important and i think that's one of the wonderful things in terms of thinking about the vision of socialism
1: what about on the international scale because you know one of the critiques of of social democracy from either the late 19th and early 20th century is that well you know they stay within their national frameworks and in 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 some cases even supported you know imperialists uh, activities of their nation state. So, how how would you insert the global and the international into your framework?
0: Really happy that you raised that because I, I think that uh, I, I should have raised it myself. It's a really important question, and I think it's also a controversial one. So, I think it's uh, I, I think everything the left does has to be done with an international sensibility. What we're fighting for is. Uh, You know, the kind of social justice that is universal. If you're a socialist, you have to be an internationalist and a universalist. So that goes without saying. On the other hand, the question is, uh, what can you do uh, when there's a problem somewhere else in the world, uh, beyond sloganizing about it or, you know, trying to limit imperialism from going there? The point is, if you really want to make change, you have to transform your state. This is, I think, a fundamental lesson we have to learn. Socialism, in this sense, starts at home. But of course, it can't end there. You have to transform your state. It's only when you transform your state that you get the kind of capacities that allow you to actually do things for other people. If you're not competing with other countries, you can say, hey, we can make this equipment. You want the patent? You can make it too. And by the way, you want some people to go over there and teach you how to use it? Of course we'll send them because we're not thinking in terms of competition. We're trying to think about how does everybody rise and how can we start planning things together? Obviously with the environment, that's pretty obvious case. But we also, you know, part of the point I made about we don't know exactly how to do this is that you learn from experimenting. It would be terrific if all kinds of societies are trying to figure out how socialism might work, some with maybe a little bit more market, some with a little bit less, some with things we haven't even thought about. So we're all learning from each other. And I think one of the main things we want from internationalism is to learn from each other. And what that means is we also have to be honest. And I think that's been a failure. Every time something good happens in a country, we rush to say this is it. And when it fails, we rush to find an excuse so we can move on to the next big thing. What we actually have to say is, look, they tried. That's to their great credit. They failed. What do we learn? Because that's the real question. Uh, socialism, if socialism is a process and you have to learn, we don't want to keep relearning all these lessons and failures. We want to learn from every example. And that means learning a lot of tough stuff. And those tough things are often what the left doesn't want to talk about. So we have to be able to critically and comradely examine all each of these experiments. And I think that's crucial.
1: Well let's turn to more of our contemporary situation. Um in you know in the last several years we we've witnessed a resurgence of the left and and certainly your essay is is uh, you know I I don't think it would exist, really, if it wasn't for a resurgence of the left. Um, And and this is particularly in electoral politics, right? We've had Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. We've had Syriza in Greece. We've had Bernie Sanders here in the United States. Um, What do you, you know, you also wrote about the need uh, in an article in the Jacobin a few years ago. You wrote about the need for a new socialist party. Uh, and the possibilities and limits of say a corbin or a sanders campaigns how do you view the situation now that we've seen both the defeat of these these two figures electorally
0: well it's a subject of uh, the book that just came out on the socialist challenge today and also I, i'm hoping that uh, i just wrote something that might be on jacobin tonight uh, which which addresses that so, so let me uh, take a few minutes to do that, because I'm kind of thinking out out loud. It's such a big question. Uh, One of the things that uh, Leo and Steve and I have emphasized in our new book is starting with the importance of the shift from protest to politics. A lot of politics have been movements, some that come and go, some that last a little bit longer, uh, but but that have avoided the question of the state. And the state is really what politics revolves around transforming the state is what revolutions are actually about. It's not just about somebody else coming to power. It's about there's a state that's a capitalist state and it has capitalist capacities and doesn't have socialist capacities like democratic planning. Uh, so the shift from protest to politics was a really important move to saying somehow we have to think about the state, but it's still left open the question about, okay, but what kind of politics does that mean? And there are Marxists, like myself, who've always argued that uh, you cannot get to socialism through the Democratic Party. You cannot get to it through the Labour Party. These parties have legacies, they have a particular kind of base. But above all, they have a particular kind of politics. And the trouble with those politics is that they're primarily electoral and policy oriented. Nothing wrong with policies, obviously. This is how you mobilize and organize around. But the real question is, how are you ever gonna implement those policies? And that's a question about how do you develop the social force to do that? And the primary role of socialist parties historically, and I think this is a lesson that's still completely relevant, is how do you make the working class into a social force that has the potentials, the capacities Uh, to lead, not by itself, but to play a leading role as a social force in transforming the economies, you know, the communities, everything uh, about how we live. So that's the fundamental question. So, so, you know, people like myself would have argued when we saw Bernie saying he's going to run in the primaries for the Democrats as, well, you can't make socialism that way. But I think we have to think about this question of making socialism as coming from Different spaces from people who have different politics. And I think what Bernie showed, and I think deserves enormous credit from socialists, is that he created a space for socialist discourse and for putting all kinds of ideas on the agenda that is going to help socialists who want socialism in the Marxist sense. And I think so, I'm, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I think a lot of us were right about the limits of that. In Bernie's case, how the Democratic Party establishment would respond. But even if Bernie got elected, the kind of the limits that would be put on him, the fact that you know the labor movement is not, you know, very strong on this question of uh, organizing, mobilizing, educating, and, and uh, you know, and, and even the ones that support Bernie, uh, you know, Bernie has an incredible support from workers for his policies, but if when it comes to voting, they vote practically. We want to defeat Trump. You know, this is, they're looking to the immediate, and Trump. And so it's still a electoral. People were looking for a shortcut, I guess is what I'm saying. And one of the lessons is, okay, there was a lot achieved through doing this. But we have to think, or at least some of us have to think and build around the long term. And we shouldn't see people who supported Sanders. Of course, they're not the enemy. And they accomplished a lot, which is incredibly helpful. It's, that's incredibly important. But we also need people who are thinking beyond it about the limits of that kind of politics. And so what could a new politics be? And it's, it's completely important in, uh, you know, in England where Corbyn is gone and he's not being replaced by another Corbynite. And the question in both places are what are we gonna do? And I, I think this question is really important. I think there is a real danger when people tend to rely on the shortcut. Even though, I, you know, when I, say, I don't want to be dismissive when I say it's a shortcut. I think it's an important, critical avenue because you're suddenly on the big stage. When you play the electoral game, you're getting the media attention. You're on the big stage. You can, you know, introduce all kinds of policies. Policies that we're actually seeing in a lot of ways are suddenly uh, Actually becoming mainstream Like healthcare in England, you know nationalizing rail no longer controversial um, So I Think the danger however is well. What happens when you don't have that vehicle? Sanders is gone or Corbin is gone. Will this dissipate? I think this is the big threat people are exhausted People will make all kinds of courageous statements about we've got to continue the fight, but there really is a danger is, what are you going to focus on?
1: The other problem too I think to, related to that is like one of the one of the things about electoral campaigns is that it mobilizes people right and and you know the it, it, electoral campaigns also condition the political cycle, so how do you maintain a level of activity without without it being in the shell of that electoral cycle
0: no exactly you, you, you need both to think ha- about how you maintain that level of activity, but also how do you make socialists? So you've got a cadre who's influencing uh, the direction. So I, I think there's a few things that are absolutely important right now. One is I think we need to uh, really defend workers through this health crisis. We can't just be sitting around thinking about uh, socialism. We, we absolutely have to think about it. How do we really defend this? You know, particularly the frontline workers who are taking all the risks uh, you know, and challenging what Trump is doing. I think that's fundamental. The second thing is uh, we really have to find a couple of campaigns, whether it's healthcare and the environment and labor law reform, that are national and that keep the institutional networks and everything we've had together. There's an institutional question that you raised. But how do we keep this all together if we don't have an immediate electoral focus? And I think having national campaigns that, of course, they're going to be related to electoral stuff, healthcare, the environment, labor law reform. But we need those campaigns so we can nationalize around them, strengthen our organizations, do education around them, get the labor movement involved. The third thing, which is maybe trickier, is I think we have to make socialists. I think if we don't have cadres of socialists, I mean developed socialists, in the working class, you know, among students, in academia, if we don't have that, and in the movements, um, we're always kind of in this trap. And we don't want people who are gonna go in and take things over. Uh, we want people who are informed socialists, who know how to talk to workers, and who are catalysts for other workers to become socialists, and socialists, they're organizers, they're intellectual organizers. That's the other thing we desperately, um, Need So I think all of those are important. And there's one other thing that we need, which I think is the most difficult and most important. We have to figure out of how we will be embedded in the working class. I, I've been listening to Leo a lot when he comes back from England, talking about uh, the uh, Midwest and the North in England, where you had generations and generations of people who just, you know, the debates were about how left you were going to be who automatic labor rights. And they end up voting conservative and for breakfast. And the question is, how does that happen? And and these are all people who support Corbyn's policies. They think his policies are wonderful. But it happens partly because with the industrialization, you also lose that labor base, all those radical shop stewards who lived in those communities, making socialist arguments. Uh, You also lose a lot of militancy because people are on the defensive and more worried about competition. And politics changes, working class politics gave way to movement politics and it didn't penetrate unions. Uh, Unions themselves weren't doing the kind of education. They said vote Corbyn, but it was because Corbyn will promise you things. It wasn't about seeing workers as having the capacity that you wanted to develop so they could act autonomously, which meant that in those communities, when the right made those arguments in those communities, there was still left to challenge them. And that's what we need.
1: And not not to mention the, the 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 hierarchies and differences within the working class in terms of say even race or gender, ethnicity, religion, that all have to be negotiated. I mean, you know, in America
0: including, including skills and poor workers and workers who are well off, and one resenting the better well off workers because they're better paid, the other resenting workers who depend on welfare, et cetera. So absolutely, that, that's why the point that you're making is you're there to make a working class out of this diversity without pretending it doesn't exist or trying to erase the diversity.
1: Now, let me go to a question. And I want a reminder for those of you who are listening, if you have questions, please put them in the chat. Um, I'm gonna to go to a question here from Gabe Kramer. I'm a good friend here in Pittsburgh. He says, uh, I have a question about how and Sam's conception of socialism can the power of workers in their own organization interact with the power of the Socialist Party and its leadership of a planning state? Uh, so how could a creative and constructive tension between socialist-minded unions and workers, workers focused on socialist politicians and planners work?
0: I, I want to say something before I get into these questions. And uh, aside from saying earlier that one of the reasons I wrote this I thought it was, uh, was to convince myself. The other was, I thought it was important to encourage a discussion and get a lot of answers from others who, for example, would ask a question that was just asked or would say, can you show, tell me more about how this might work in the healthcare sector? And my answer would be, are you in the healthcare sector? You tell me. I mean, we have to think about this. No, really, I mean, we have to think, well, how would this work? Uh, for somebody who works in the state, how would it work in the healthcare sector? How would it work in an auto plant? And I was I, I was kind of hoping that people would take those questions and make them into their own studies and write about them. So, can I try to answer it? Uh, I'm not quite clear on it, but let me try to answer it and then I'll let Gabe come back if he thinks I fudged it. So one of my concerns about politics, is how do workers who are still working in their own factories have a politics you know they can have a politics individually Uh, they can have a politics because they're not commodified in other words they actually have control over what happens in their workplace so they do have a a, you know a power to strike when no one's going to close the factories but i'd also like to figure out how do they have a politics that links them to other workers in the same industry so I was thinking that it's very important to have sectoral committees that allocate investment across plants and that centralize things like research and development so we don't have a situation where workers are competing with each other and some workers lose their jobs. In fact, we do the opposite. What we say is the role of the sector is to make sure that we lift up the weakest and make them better, have them go to the plants that are better. Give them the research and development. Send our experts to them, workers who understand it. In other words, I'm trying to think about how you make at the sectoral level have elected councils across the sector that give you another power base, not just in the workplace. And that power base can then have some control over the central planners. So I think it's those kinds of institutions. You can do a certain amount of uh, regional decentralization. So you have layers of planning. You would have planning at the city level, where people develop power and can affect things. There's things you can affect at the city level, regional health, housing, transportation. So it doesn't all have to be centralized. You know, p- part of this is sorting out what has to be centralized and what not. Uh, and then the party has to be a completely open party. It has to be in competition with other parties. It can't be a monopoly, so it becomes part of the state apparatus. And the role of the party has to be to recognize that different workers are going to probably develop different interests. Some workers are going to, might be saying, I want more of a market because I think I could do better under it. Maybe skilled workers say that. And uh, some workers are going to say that you're moving too fast to too many free goods. But you need a party and you need that kind of economic debate to ask, well, how fast do we want to move towards freer goods? Uh, is it more important to grow faster or to grow in a more equal way? So there has to be that constant debate at every level, at every press. There has to be more journals of debate and news uh, with more opinions. And those are all questions for us to both dream about, but actually ask the question Gabe is asking. How do you concretely do that? And I guess I I, I don't, again, I, I don't know that I can say this is it. But I can think of all kinds of ways that if we do them, Wow, will it be a richer place?
1: But I, I do want to go back to to the, the situation now. And particularly you know, in, in your answer, you mentioned that right now, you know, labor unionism is at a, a low. Labor unions do are not strong. So what role do you see them playing in our political situation now in terms of moving forward with uh, socialist politics after Corbin and Sanders?
0: I do want to say that when you look at the labor movement, uh, for all its limits, what you do see is the potentials. I mean, the importance about the sporadic struggles that we've seen, you know especially amongst the teachers, is you know the enormous creativity and energy that gets developed, how how once things start unfolding, the kinds of connections they can make with the community, the way they can get involved in local politics, the way they can inspire others,. Uh, so that's really impressive, you're seeing that potential. Now I wanna say something about that potential. Um, I can't document this, uh, but talking to some people who have been active in Chicago and LA and who've written about this, and talking to Jane McAlevey, one of the things that strikes me is that where things have happened, it's actually been often because of socialists. There's something about the teaching profession that it attracts a lot of people who are interested in education as opposed to other professions. So it shows that the kind of things, skills that socialists develop, for example, working in community work, uh, trying to bridge differences, uh, thinking about capacities is really paying off, not because they can step in and say, this is the way to do it, because suddenly what they're saying rings, a, you know, it rings true. And people, so it shows you that socialists are important. And organizers like you know, Jane McAlevey have, you know, have been so, so important in pulling together the potentials. And Jane has learned a lot of her skills from skills that have been passed on since the CIO and the people who worked with, the, the communists who worked for the CIO. So, but, but I think it makes a larger point. I am very worried about social, about the labor movement moving towards socialist ideas or even becoming, really strong unions uh, for any spontaneous reason. And let, let me give you two examples that I would stress. One is a lot of the left longs for the good old days of the 60s when workers were so militant. The true lesson of the 60s was the limits of militancy. You can be militant, but if all you're militant, if all you're doing is being militant, you'll squeeze profits. And when you squeeze profits, corporations and the state come down on you, and eventually you get exhausted either by them letting unemployment rise, by them not investing or investing elsewhere. One of the key lessons of the 60s was that militancy is a start, but then you have to become political to protect yourself and move forward. So spontaneity, you know, we've lost. So again, the question of how do you politicize unions? you know, I just want to keep emphasizing this. Unions are actually particularist organizations. They're formed to, to represent their own members. Sometimes democracy is a problem. Members want their leaders not to be off doing some big political thing. They want them to be representing them. Why are you talking about Venezuela? i got a problem. And so, you know, even democracy, it's not enough. We have to, the key with unions is to push them towards becoming Uh, class organizations, class struggle organizations. Now, I don't think they will become that fully. It's just trying to create currents within them so that there is some support in unions for the larger socialist movement and that unions can support it through funding, through sending their members there. They're still unions, and that limits them being socialist organizations. But I think that's the challenge, and that's the challenge for socialists. It works... Both ways. The weakness of the labor movement has to do with the defeat of the left, not just unions. And the the symbiosis between changing unions and transforming them uh, requires socialists. And the reason I emphasize that is I don't, I think it's a mistake to think that unions kind of go through these steps of getting hammered more and then becoming militant, and then militancy making them socialist. It, It doesn't happen that way. Uh, you know, I guess another way of putting this is that the unions that came out of the war were particularist. They were looking after their members. They still had some left legacy. Uh, but in those days, it worked. Other people followed you. You led. You were confident. The economy was growing. That era's over. Now what do you do? And unions have not come to grips with, I don't even think unions have recognized how serious the problem is. You know, they always kind of long for, we'll get rid of this politician, and maybe things will be better. We'll get a Democratic administration. Well, they betrayed us, but maybe next time they won't. Uh, Unions haven't asked, what's wrong with us? What is it about the way we function, how we allocate resources, how we strategize? That's a problem. Even unionizing people, Uh, we think in terms of, we have to increase union density. Well, it's not quite true. We used to have decent union density. And then we ended up in the morass we're in today. If all you want is more dues, that's not helpful. You have to think in terms of, we want to organize precarious workers because they're part of the working class. And we want a strong working class. And it's in fact, only when you think that way, that your members will allow you to spend more money on organizing. Otherwise, they're going to want the money spent on themselves.
1: So um, finally, you know, we i want to ask you about our, our you know current situation right now and that is of course the coronavirus and its global impact and in in relationship to labor of course we've seen lots of spontaneous labor uh um uprisings around the around the united states uh, in the last couple of weeks um what do, given this pandemic you know first how has the pandemic given you some reflection on how we or socialists should move forward to providing an alternative to a capitalist system?
0: Let me just say one thing just before I do that, and that has to do with this broadcast itself. Uh, One of the things I miss about actually doing these things with people right there is you get feedback from them, and then you begin to actually be able to piece together what's really going on. So I I, I kind of... uh, miss the exchange it's so useful in getting a sense of where people are at okay in your question uh i think a few things um one of the things is that uh the discourse has all changed you know the question about budget deficits and uh strengthening unemployment insurance and the importance of health care all this has changed i mean there's an opening now things that we used to uh you know, we'd be written off. When we were arguing to convert the closure of the Oshawa plant uh, to projects that uh, would support the environment, we were called delusional. Now every politician and a good number of businessmen are running around saying we should convert things. So, you know, there's, there's a whole change in the discourse. Healthcare is now looked upon differently. And I think the point is that there's a sensitivity to, A, we have to be sensitive to essential services and we have to be prepared in a way that a capitalist economy is generally not prepared for because if you're worried about profits you're not worried about inventing a medicine that you might never need or having extra ventilators just in case so i think there's i think there's an opening in terms of essential services that we can play on and i think that we can argue for making those essential services much broader you know we're seeing all kinds of problems of people who can't get food uh, you know, so uh, you know housing, rentals, th- you know i think I think there's a way in which we can emphasize, you know the pandemic makes you feel you're equal, even though obviously there's all kinds of unequal structures. But the rhetoric is that, and I think we should be really emphasizing the importance of expanding quite dramatically what we think of as essential services, for example, the pharmacare industry, putting under public ownership, because right? they're not going to invent. The drugs that they think might not be needed. I think we have to think about the medical equipment industry, so we can convert it and produce what we need. So I think there's those kinds of questions about what's essential, and that leads to questions, changes in the economy about what's essential. I think we we've got an incredible opening on um, the environment. You know, I mean, the point is that there is a pandemic coming. That you know, we don't have to say there's going to be other crises. There's one right now, it's called environment. And it's not going to be fixed by a vaccine. So, so there's an opening for saying we, we weren't prepared for this and the environment's going to be way worse, so we better get on it. And it's going to require planning and you can't plan what you don't control. So now you've got to talk about something that begins to sound a little bit socialist. So the environment is an incredible opportunity. I think there's been an, a, a real increase in how we value frontline workers usually so lousily paid. Uh, my wife is right now making masks for bicycle couriers who deliver food. Well, these are all people who are lousily paid, written off, nobody cares much about them, and now it's hospital workers and people who deliver things who are heroes.
1: And, we got- and, they did, and, and I should say they, they're disproportionately people of color as well.
0: Yes, they're disproportionately... I haven't looked at the statistics yet, other than... Uh, uh, you know, the statistics are clear on blacks. I haven't looked at it across the board, but uh, yeah, it's obviously uh, a disproportionate impact on people who are poor, and that includes a lot of minorities, et cetera. So, so you know, and hospital workers, it's disproportionately women, et cetera. But the point is, we really have to emphasize this. We have to start talking about how undervalued these people were, and that these people were much more important than the hedge fund guys on Wall Street. They weren't doing much for us. The guy who's washing floors in a hospital. So this, you're not getting infected is much more important, but we have to build on this. We have to sustain it. And, and so so I guess all of those things begin to push us in terms of uh, all these opportunities, thinking of workers differently in terms of respect, thinking of essential services, uh, thinking of the environment and planning. Uh, all of these things are beginning to create a, fri- a framework that is an opening. Uh, and... Uh, you know, we have to see that the normal response of people is going to be to want to go back to normal. That's kind of natural. And what we have to say is, well, wait a second. Didn't you forget the, that what we had before wasn't actually that wonderful? But more important, it aggravated what just happened. And so we have to remember that. And with the environment, I really think it's a chance to get people conscious about that and the kind of changes we have to make and that capitalism itself is a barrier. And it's the cultural change that you talked about, the question of the environment. I, I don't think it, you know, it's, it's about wanting thing, different things. It, it's, you know, it's not just about less, it's about different. It's about valuing collective services, et cetera. So I think we've got a real opening and a challenge. The real challenge it keeps coming back to is are we organized to take advantage of this. And just waiting for the next election and hoping we get another Sanders won't do it. We may not have one and we can't wait. And even if you get elected, if you haven't built a base, electoral politics ends up to be a trap in a lot of ways too. You, you wanna have a base so that you can push these people because otherwise they'll retreat, they'll get pressure from business and if they're not being pushed by labor, et cetera. So we have to think about uh, yeah, building in all those examples of people who are now fighting over health and safety in the plant around the coronavirus, or converting their plants and seeing, hey, it's possible to convert a plant. Who knew that? Uh, and, and by the way, conversion has to be put in a planning context. You can't just, you know, you, you know, you, you try to convert a plant and you find out that, hey, I can't get uh, the machinery for this. And then you need the state to say, well, oh, wait a second, we'll tell the people who are making the machinery and using it for something else that this is more important. So you need a plan.
1: That was Sam Gindin. He spent most of his working life as research director of the Canadian Auto Workers, now Unifor. After leaving the union, he was Packer Chair in Social Justice at York University. He's co-author with Leo Panitch of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of Empire, published by Verso. And most recently, also with Panish and Steve Mayer, The Socialist Challenge Today, Syriza Corbin Sanders, published by Haymarket Books. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.